Midday Knowledge. Hello, my name is Onopa Chirimobaiwa and I am the program coordinator for the FVZS Institute. And I'm so pleased to welcome you to the Midday Knowledge Podcast. This podcast was pre-recorded as part of our Midday Knowledge sessions. Enjoy. So firstly, welcome everybody. Thank you for your time and thank you, Mr. Naidu, especially for um, giving us some of your precious time that you have to provide us with some good insight on our constitution. I just want to, before I go ahead, remind everybody of the topic at hand, which is actually the constitution as a beacon of hope towards a brighter future. And if you notice, we've got a question mark because it's actually a question that is going to be posed today rather than an actual statement. So before I begin on the theme itself, I'm just going to read um, Mr. Naidu's bio to you all so you have a better understanding of who he is, his background, and why we asked him specifically to provide us with some subject um, expertise on, on the Constitution. So Lawson Naidu is the Executive Secretary of the Council for the Advancement of the, of the South African Constitution, and that's called CASAC, and it's an organization that is committed to the principles of progressive constitutionalism, democracy, and the rule of law. Mr. Naidu has held this position since its inception in 2010. He has worked as a, as a strategic political consultant, focusing on the spheres of anti-corruption and good governance. He is a regular media commentator on constitutional and legal issues. Lawson is a founding partner at the Paternoster Group, African Political Insight, and it's a consultancy consultancy focusing on political economy issues in SA. Lawson was appointed chairperson of the Board of Cricket of, of Cricket South Africa in June 2021. And for all the cricket fans, he also serves as a director of the International Cricket Council, the ICC, which is the global governing body for cricket. He is a trustee of the Momentum Medical Scheme, and is the chairman of its governance and remuneration committee. Mr. Naidu is a former trustee of the Cannon Collins Educational and Legal Assistance Trust, which is an NGO that focuses on providing scholarships to tertiary students and the promotion of human rights in Southern Africa. Mr. Naidu has previously held the position of special advisor to the Speaker of the National Assembly, Assembly excuse me, from 1994 to 99. Mr. Naidu actually spent many years in political exile in the UK and worked at the ANC mission in London, serving inter alia as a spokesperson for the ANC. So very well accomplished and very offers his expertise to us today. Thank you uh, to all of you and to student affairs at uh, Stellenbosch University for inviting me to participate in this uh, midday knowledge in this important month of April, which, uh, as has been stated, is uh, the month in which we celebrate uh, our democracy in South Africa, with the first elections having taken place on the 27th of April 1994, uh, public holiday that we will celebrate next week, uh, 28 years of, of democracy in South Africa. Uh, but it's been a long road to get to that point of democracy, and it's been a long and and uh, many would argue, quite rightly, I would say, a stuttering road 
in the last 28 years that has brought us to where we are today, which I think uh, would be fair to say falls short of the vision that is outlined in the Constitution. And that uh, leads to a number of questions, which I hope we will be able to address in the course of uh, this lunchtime discussion today. Uh, but I want to start by locating the, the origins of the Constitution uh, in, its, in its context, because I think there's a lot of misinformation uh, around the legitimacy of the Constitution that has been seen uh, or been, become quite prominent of late. So I think in order to, uh, to address that and to understand it, it is important to perhaps spend a minute or two just reflecting on how we got to the point of the Constitution that we have today. Uh, I think there are three, uh, for, well, certainly for the purposes of this discussion, three convenient phases that we can, we can point to in terms of the evolution of the South African Constitution. The first phase of that would be the, uh, the content of the liberation struggle itself uh, in, during the apartheid era, uh, and uh, that liberation struggle was driven by particular principles and values. Uh, and certainly, as, as far as the African National Congress is concerned, they made deliberate attempts, particularly in the 1980s, towards formulating key principles around what a constitutional dispensation in South Africa should look like, what it should incorporate, including the notion of a justiciable Bill of Rights, something that has found uh, its place in our constitution today. So there was very much a drive, certainly in the latter years of the liberation uh, struggle in the 80s and the early 90s, with a focus on constitutionalism, why it was important, and why it was important also to, uh, to create a society that is uh, 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 you know, governed by clear principles, policies, and uh, an allocation of rights and responsibilities. We then entered into the phase in the very early 1990s, firstly with, in 1990 with the uh, release from prison of Nelson Mandela and other political prisoners, uh, the unbanning of, of political organizations, which led to a period of uh, the so-called negotiations, uh, the Codessa negotiations uh, and the like, which took place in that period from 1990 to 1993. That ultimately gave birth to what is now known as the interim constitution uh, agreed to by the apartheid parliament in 1993, because we had not yet attained the vote for all South Africans. Uh, but it was a negotiated interim uh, constitution that paved the way for the elections that we had in 1994. Those elections produced not only a democratically elected parliament consisting of two houses, the National Assembly and what was then called the Senate, now uh, uh, has been uh, transformed into the National Council of Provinces as the, the second chamber in, in, in the national parliament. But the members of that National Assembly also constituted themselves as members of a constitutional assembly, which operated alongside parliament and uh, crafted, negotiated, and discussed uh, what was to become the final constitution, which, as Cameron has said, was signed on International Human Rights Day in uh, uh, 1996. Uh, that 
process took two years from the uh, April uh, 1994 elections until 1996. And that included not just a parliamentarian sitting uh, in parliament and discussing it, but widespread public consultation with many millions of uh, submissions being received by the Constitutional Assembly, all of which were considered as part of the process of negotiating and finalizing that constitution. So when the legitimacy of the constitution is questioned, I think people refer more uh, to the uh, negotiations that led to the interim constitution, which was clearly uh, a negotiation process amongst the uh, representatives of the uh, then National Party government, uh, as well as representatives of political formations and liberation movements. They were, they were not democratically elected, and therefore, to a certain extent, one could perhaps question the legitimacy of that interim process. But it was a necessary part of the process to get to a de democratic system. And therefore, the final constitution, which, as I've said, has been part of a, uh, uh, an extensive public participation process, uh, and, and clearly a very legitimate one, which was passed by a democratically elected uh, constitutional assembly and then ultimately parliament itself. So I think it's important to place in context the, the, the process that led to the, to the final constitution being, uh, being adopted. Now that constitution can be uh, regarded as the birth certificate of a democratic South Africa. It gives us uh, uh, the legitimacy that we, we had craved, that we had been denied uh, during the apartheid years, and it created the platform for a democratic society. And I think it's worth reading just a section of the preamble to that constitution, uh, where it says, we therefore, through our freely elected representatives, adopt this constitution as the supreme law of the republic, so as to heal the divisions of the past and establish a society based on democratic values, social justice, and fundamental human rights. Those are key principles. To lay the foundations for a democratic and open society in which government is based on the will of the people and every citizen is equally protected by law. To improve the quality of life of all citizens and free the potential of each person. And to build a united and democratic South Africa able to take its rightful place as a sovereign state in the family of nations. We sometimes, uh, you know, uh, don't internalize what those few uh, phrases or that paragraph actually means. And it really is a blueprint for the kind of society that the Constitution envisages. And that is why people like myself and organizations like CASAC refer to the Constitution as providing a framework or a roadmap towards fulfilling and realizing that vision in the constitution of a society based on equality, fundamental human rights, and human dignity. Uh, legal academics would refer to it as uh, progressive constitutionalism, as to use the, the constitution in progressive context in order uh, to achieve the same purpose, which is to realize that vision. So the question may be asked, well, why have we failed in so many respects? And uh, the education uh, sphere is one of those uh, aspects, I think, in which we can probably say that we have not achieved as much as we should. The thing I say very often is that the Constitution 
does not uh, is not a, a self-implementing document. Um, it is a framework. Uh, it is an allocation of power, uh, rights, and responsibilities amongst the three arms of the state. Uh, Parliament as the legislative body, the executive being the government of the day, and the judiciary as an independent arm of the state, which has uh, the responsibility to interpret the constitution and all laws of the republic, uh, and is the ultimate uh, arbiter of disputes when it comes to uh, uh, constitutional matters. And the checks and balances that are built into our system uh, uh, have, have been put there deliberately in order to ensure that public power is not abused and that it is, it is used in accordance with the purposes that are set out in that constitution. Now, we've certainly seen that that has not always been the case. Uh, the recent re revelations at the uh, Zondo Commission of Inquiry into State Capture have revealed how organs of state uh, and even uh, institutions of governance were repurposed in order to facilitate the looting of public resources by a political elite and their associates. So uh, the weaknesses in the constitutional system have been exposed, uh, particularly at the level of uh, institutions of governance and organs of state. We saw how, for example, the National Prosecuting Authority, the Hawks, the Revenue Service, uh, the police itself were all um, uh, infiltrated and uh, uh, and used in order to further the goals of the state capture project. But ultimately, the constitution held firm through a robust uh, civil society sector, through a uh, um, a robust and independent media who exposed uh, issues of state capture. And ultimately, through the courts, where cases were brought before the courts, the courts were firmly on the side of the constitution of justice uh, and fairness and ruled against uh, the, the government and uh, uh, organs of state on many, many occasions uh, in recent years in order to, to forestall the total takeover of the state by state capture forces. So I think. Uh, the Zondo Commission has been a, a, a good reminder of how things can go wrong, but also the bravery of those who stood up uh, to, uh, to state capture, to uh, large-scale corruption, and uh, allowed us to try and get our constitutional uh, 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 dispensation back on track. It's going to be a long, hard process, because the issue, the fundamental issue there is one of public accountability and how we use the constitution in order to hold those with power, both in the public as well as in the private sectors, accountable for their deeds and actions. Um, what is then the role of universities in this context and a body like student affairs? You know, universities are, are, are forums for, for free thinking uh, as forums to challenge uh, orthodoxy to challenge uh, what may be seen as established thinking, uh, but it must be done on the basis of empirical evidence, research, and reasoned argument. And so some of the argument that we hear, particularly coming from, uh, from young people, is a dismissal uh, of the legitimacy of the Constitution, 
that it was a, a deal done in smokeful rooms by political elites, as I've indicated earlier, is very far from the truth. It is a legitimate um, uh, a document. It is certainly not flawless. It is lauded as one of the best in the world, but it's certainly not without its flaws. And a constitution anywhere in the world has got to be a living, engaged document in which we seek uh, to ensure that the constitution is there to uh, enable us to address the challenges of the, of the particular day. It's not a sacrosanct document. It has been amended 17 times already um, uh, by parliament in order to, to fix some of uh, uh, the issues that, uh, that have arisen through experience and practice. Uh, but, you know, this is an opportunity for universities to engage in a debate about whether the Constitution is actually a beacon of hope for a brighter future, or uh, if it isn't, what needs to change in order to, to create that brighter beacon that can lead us to the, uh, the vision that is articulated in the Constitution. I think very few people would disagree with that vision that I read out a little bit earlier. Universities must also see themselves as part of broader communities in which you are located. You're not an ivory tower. You don't exist as an institution on its own. Uh, but um, uh, at Stellenbosch, you're part of that, that community and you, you're an important part of that, uh, of that community in a way that many other universities are not. You know, the university in Stellenbosch, uh, you know, together with the, with the wine industry, dom dominates what happens in, in uh, the town and in the municipality uh, as well. So there's a real opportunity for the university and those of you within that university to have a greater impact on the society around you by engaging with those communities around you around some of these key issues which affect many of those people around the universities, uh, you know, uh, from the poor uh, people working on, on, on the various farms around you to business people in, in Stellenbosch who also have issues uh, around some aspects of the constitution, some aspects of economic policy that are uh, pursued by government. But it's about engaging in those debates, hearing what the concerns are and using the infrastructure uh, that you have in terms of the research capability of, of an institution of higher education to address those concerns and, and to come up with solutions to those societal problems uh, that we collectively confront. I want to spend a moment just talking about young people more specifically. And one of the things that's really concerned me uh, is the, the, uh, the, the lack of engagement by young people in formal political processes and democratic processes in South Africa. Uh, if I just give you as an example figures from the 2019 national and provincial elections. Uh, at that time in 2019, we had a, an eligible uh, voters role of 36 million people. In other words, there are 36 million South Africans who are eligible to register to vote and to participate in elections. Of that uh, 36 million, 9 million people, that's 25% roughly did not even bother to register to vote. So we ended up with a, uh, a voters role of just um, 27 million. And of that, I think about 58% actually voted. That's concerning in itself. But 
much more concerning for me and I think for, for you as people who are engaged uh, with young people on a daily basis is the fact that of those 9 million people who had not registered, 6 million, two thirds of that were aged between 18 and 29. And that number seems to be growing, that there's a sense amongst young people in particular um, that why should I bother because it doesn't change anything, that uh, you know, political, the political power is not being exercised in a manner uh, that is envisaged in the Constitution, it's not being exercised in a manner to benefit all South Africans and to realise that vision that I spoke about, but it's rather being utilised to benefit a political elite or only certain sections of our society. That's something that we need to address if we're going to sustain the democratic foundations of South Africa going into the future. Uh, this is not a comment or, or uh, on, on political parties, but uh, it's a really a question of saying that we need to take responsibility as citizens to become active citizens and patriotic South Africans to promote that constitution. Whether If we don't like aspects of it, let's engage on, on, on those issues rather than dismiss the whole thing out of hand, because I think it is really, really um, dangerous if that were to happen. If I can then perhaps just uh, uh, make one final point ar around that, and this is an issue I think that not enough people are, are aware of or uh, engaged in. Parliament is at the moment, uh, as a result of a judgment of the Constitutional Court in June of 2020, in a case known as the New Nation Movement case, Parliament has been directed by the Constitutional Court uh, to consider amendments to our electoral system in order to enable independent candidates, i.e. individuals, to stand for election in national and provincial elections. Now, you will know that in terms of our current electoral system, only political parties contest national and provincial elections. Unlike the local government model, uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and particularly with us having had local government elections in November last year, where we vote both, vote both for individual candidates as our ward councillors, and they can be independent candidates who stand uh, as ward councillors, and many of them do in fact get elected. And then we also vote for political parties on a separate ballot. Uh, so the changes that are currently being considered by Parliament could have a significant impact uh, um, on the legitimacy of, of, of our electoral system. But I think there are options on the table in terms of electoral reform that will make public uh, representatives more accountable, bring them closer to the electorate, uh, uh, rather than the current system where uh, elected representatives seem to owe their first uh, line of allegiance to the political parties that put them there, rather than to you and I as the voters. And that's why I think many young people feel disenchanted and feel remote from the political process because they're not able to engage directly uh, in those political processes. So this opportunity to participate in the debate on electoral reform is an important one because societies don't get the uh, chance very often to change the way that we vote. We had the opportunity um, in terms of the interim constitution, which created the current model, 
and it was a model that worked at the time because it was simple. Um, in 1994, uh, there wasn't enough time for to get people registered to vote. So all you had to do was produce your ID document and you were allowed to vote. And it was a simple system uh, where the big advantage of the system is that every vote does in fact count uh, and it does count equally. Uh, the various options that are being looked at at the moment, including introducing a model similar to that which operates at a local government level, uh, uh, departs from that in a certain way. But, you know, no electoral system is perfect. And I think the, the biggest challenge that faces South Africa, based on what we've gone through in the last 10 years or so, issues of the lack of public accountability uh, culminating in, in grand-scale corruption, and, in fact, and including state capture means that we need to strengthen the accountability mechanisms that our constitution provides. And electoral reform is one of the key areas which I think we should be collectively focused in order to come up with the best solution to uh, strengthen the foundations of our democracy in South Africa. So, Edward, let me leave my uh, thoughts there for now. I hope I've uh, stuck to my 20 minutes and I really look forward to engaging with the questions from the audience. If anyone has any questions, they can put their hand up first uh, if they want to say anything or if they want to type it in the chat. Um, but yeah if, yeah, if there is anyone that has anything, the one question that I do have for you, Mr. Nard, is you have some experience in the UK uh, because you, you studied there and uh, you were admitted as a barrister. Something about our, do you think that there's more merits in having our con a, a, a codified constitution that we have compared to, say, the British model or where the basic laws are, are it has a long tradition of the legal judgment. So do you think that we made the, a good decision going as, as a codified constitution, uh, if you had to think on your experiences on both sides? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think that's a really good good question. Thanks, Edward. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer that a, a, a codified written constitution is the, is the most appropriate system of governance in the 21st century. Uh, you know, even in the UK, which is the best known example of an unwritten constitution, where, you know, they, they pull together from, from, uh, from history, um, uh, the, the norms, conditions and conventions that govern uh, the exercise of power in the UK. There's a huge demand in the UK to have a codified constitution because uh, it's something that is really necessary in a modern day society, which has become in, an increasingly complex societies and where the demands by different stratas of society compete against each other. And there needs to be clarity in terms of how that public and private power is exercised um, for the benefit of society as a whole, rather than at the expense of segments of society. So I think uh, we've certainly gone the right way in South Africa, and uh, we had no choice because with our particular history coming from an institutionalized racist past, we had to create a new uh, um, foundation for the kind of society we wanted. And the only way to do that is to reduce it to writing and codify it in terms of a constitution. Uh, and I think that was the absolutely correct thing to do. And I think we must we owe a debt of gratitude to those 
who formulated that constitution for the foresight that they had in trying to think through uh, by, by being able to, at the one level, put down the, the values and vision for the society we want to create, but also to then engage in, a, uh, in putting together the detail of the kind of constitutional model that would best suit South Africa. As I've said, um, it's it's subject to uh, to debate and to amendment. The electoral reform uh, thing, which I dwelt upon just now, is one one aspect of that, where you know fundamental uh, change may be necessary. So it's uh, you know, but it, it if you're going to change the constitution, there must be a clear purpose as to why you wish to do so. And I think the other example one can refer to in that regard is the recent attempt or de debates around whether Section 25 of the Constitution, the so-called property clause, should be amended or not. Um, people like myself have long argued that the Constitution is not an obstacle to land reform, but it is government policy that has hampered uh, the more effective implementation of a, a pro program of land reform. And ultimately, that that uh, you know that that's the situation we find ourselves in. So I think we've wasted a lot of time on a on a debate around Section 25, when we would have been better served as a society to focus our minds on how do we actually implement a sustainable land reform program that gives dignity uh, to more South Africans. Perfect. Thank you. I completely agree with you. Um, I don't know if I can say that, but I completely agree with you. I do think a codified constitution was the way to go. And I saw now, so in the chat, Cameron also responded, reacted earlier to when you mentioned the 17 amendments um, and how we don't, we think we refer to the constitution, but we also under, we don't think about how much that it's been iterated upon over time. I see a question from Anas. Go for it. I just want to ask Mr. Naidu, um, there's always this kind of thing of young people not want to be part in, in leadership structures and things like that. How can we encourage them as, a, as student affairs in Stellenbosch to, to take the constitution seriously and play their part in, in politics? Do you have any suggestions to make them more aware of of what this beautiful constitution can do for, for them? Yeah, again, it's, it's a difficult question, but you know, I would I would suggest that one way of doing that is, is really to start by getting people, uh, and not just young people, but I think you know it's a responsibility that we have uh, or we have as South Africans, all of us, uh, to have a better understanding of this constitution, uh, what it means. Uh, what it allows us to do, what power it gives to us, uh, what tools are at our disposal uh, to hold um, uh, people to account. And I think once people have a better understanding of, of those aspects of the Constitution and of the power that we, that we have as citizens in a democratic society, we need to understand that we operate in a democratic society. We have power. We have power to hold people to account, and we need to be able to exercise those powers in a more effective manner. We've not been able to do so perhaps until now. So I would start with engaging in those debates. And I think once people have an understanding of um, the rights and responsibilities under the Constitution, what's possible, 
then they are more likely to want to assume leadership positions because they will then see the benefit of using um, uh, you know, organized formations, whether it be a club or society or a community organization, in order to further the interests of a group of people uh, and of society at large. I think people are reluctant to assume leadership positions now because they feel uh, that it's really not worth their while. They're not going to be able to have an impact, that uh, nothing is going to change. And I think we need to get people to understand that things can change, that our constitution provides opportunities for public uh, participation, for public engagement, and that we are all uh, given a certain amount of power within the constitution, not simply to go and vote for our elected representatives once every five years, but to, to utilize that power in an ongoing way in order to strengthen um, uh, the democracy that we have. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think um, especially now that you mentioned the idea of there's more to democratic participation in elections is something that, again, is something I think also the our younger generation also hangs on and thinks about in terms of how do we participate and how do we interact with our society and institutions, but then in a way that might not necessarily look like the election. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think, again, you mentioned the idea of how do we bring the Constitution to people? And I think in student affairs, ours is also how do we make sure that there's that sense of ownership? Uh, because when we don't, when there's that disconnect between owning the Constitution as an idea of, you know, the Constitution is ours. It's all of ours as South Africans. Um, and we, how do we ensure that we inculcate that within our students, but then also equip them so that once they either stay at university or they leave university, they take that with them um, and bring that into the spaces because that makes them part of that change because it's not just our students that need to be prepared, but it's who we're focusing on <laughs> um, as student affairs. No, very much so, you know, and I think, you know, there's been a tendency in the past uh, that, you know, issues around the constitution should be left to, to, to law students or those in the social sciences. But we need to extend this debate or discussion to all aspects of academia, because the realization of the vision of the constitution it is as important for architects, engineers, medical students, and and all others in between to understand the kind of society because as they go out into their professional lives as engineers and architects and the like thereafter, or teachers, they need to understand how they can contribute in their particular spheres towards realizing that vision of the constitution. It can't be left simply to the policy makers at, a, at the political level to do that. Those that are implementing often have the best ideas as to how to implement rather than being told by others who have no understanding of that particular um, uh, you know, um, area of expertise. Mm. Um, there's a few more minutes left, but I just before anyone who still has questions raises their hand, I just noticed another one popped into the poll, is would we be able to negotiate a similar piece of work today? I don't think we appreciate that it was possible given the circumstances. And that that just popped through as well. Um, is there anything you think about that uh, in terms of? <laughs> well, that's that, that's a very uh, 
provocative statement, and I, you know, uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. Would we be able to negotiate uh, a similar social uh, social compact today that we were able to do? You know, I think we were fortunate in the 1990s uh, in that it was a moment that arrived where South Africans came together to realize that we needed to uh, to chart a new way forward. We didn't always agree on how that would be done. And there was clearly different interests at play by the different political formations. But it was a moment in time, uh, perhaps epitomized by the statesmanship of Nelson Mandela that helped us, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, navigate that uh, that quite difficult path. Would we be able to do that today? I think we have a much more fractured society today than we did back then. Uh, I think uh, economic um, uh, divisions are greater, socioeconomic divisions are perhaps greater than uh, than they should be. Uh, and whether we'd be able to create that universal vision of the kind of South Africa we want to create, I think is going to be much more difficult. And that's why I referred earlier to the foresight of those who framed this constitution, because they did so in a way through those, uh, through the preamble and its founding values and principles of focusing on the big picture so that successive generations could fit their uh, needs within those broad parameters. And I think that's, that's really um, uh, the magic of our constitution that it allow it's not a one size fits all it isn't located in a, in a particular point in time but it provides an overarching uh, uh, roadmap that each successive generation can tweak to its own uh, uh, circumstances to, to to achieve what what we want which is fundamental issues of equality human dignity and and progress Especially uh, what stood out for me now, especially in that response, is the idea of foresight, but also that it took leadership and it took people to be able to make it happen. And I think that is also a call for us as student affairs is that we say we are part of the leadership development space and we are part of preparing our students to be leaders. It's something that we also have to take into account. Um, mm. When we have leaders that leave, it's how do we ensure that the constitution is something that is understood, but also something that is a way of life in a way. Because I think that's part of, it's It's almost, it's the idea of <laughs> an artist bad example, but um, when generally we try and solve our problems with a diet and not a lifestyle change. Um, and I think that's part of that constitution is that we, it often becomes used when it's necessary or when we need it or when it helps us, but it's not the way of life that we live. Um, and it's about, I think that's something that stood out for me now. Yeah. I um, mean, the other point I would make, Edward, is, you know, I think, uh, you know the benefit of the, the uh, that the leaders of of um, that time brought is that they were prepared at times to put aside their uh, their party loyalties or their uh, dogmatic approach and to look at the bigger picture as what is in the best long term interest of the country as a whole and to and to 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 therefore compromise and agree more broadly on the way forward. I mean, you know, it's well known that. Nelson Mandela had uh, significant debates within the leadership of the ANC to get them to agree to some of the positions that were necessary in order to forge this path forward. And that's the kind of, of, of statesmanlike leadership that sees or puts the interests of the country 
ahead of the interests of the political organization that they may happen to represent. Thank you for listening to our podcast and remember to follow us on Instagram at FEZS Institute and subscribe to the podcast for bi-weekly uploads. Also feel free to send us a message if you would like to collaborate on an episode or if you're interested in one of our short courses.